All right, our lesson today is, comes out of Exodus 25, where God prescribes the uh, setup and design of the tabernacle and how and where his worship should occur and how and where he will reside among his people. Um, just wanted to look back a little bit. Last week we dug into the Ten Commandments without really doing any review um, of Exodus. Um, but we all know that Exodus has come out of slavery, that they were um, in Egypt. Um, Joseph had migrated down there, and they have multiplied tremendously uh, and are a huge number of people now. And God comes and brings Moses onto the scene who delivers them um, through plagues, um, through miracles, um, and has, leads them out of Egypt, out of slavery, um, they've wandered into the wilderness, crossed the Red Sea miraculously and wandered into the wilderness. And now they've come to the base of Mount Sinai in the Sinai wilderness. Um, and they are um, um, gathered there and camped there. Um, and God has uh, placed his cloud of uh, appearance above the mount. Uh, and Moses has been summoned to come up the mount to talk to God. Um, in Exodus 19... It says, Israel had camped before the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you should speak to the people of Israel. And so Moses shares that with the people. Then he comes back in chapter 20 and God gives him the Ten Commandments um, from Mount Sinai. And then he is called up. um, And before today's lesson, he is is called back again um, to go to the back up on the mountain, and this is when God's supposed to give him the tablets um, that the, the law is written on. So he's gone down, shared the, the law, and he's come back up to get the tablets, and, and God has a whole lot more because Moses is going to end up staying for 40 days and 40 nights this time, uh, as, Moses is, as God's going to give him lots of instruction. Um, so at the end of chapter 24, it says, Moses came back up the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So here's where... We're going to get the stone tablets, um, and tablets would contain more than the Ten Commandments. They would, they would contain the expanded law um, that's recorded in chapters 20 through 23, all those laws, and there's laws in there about dealing with slavery and, and dealing with social justice and all, all kinds of laws in there that are going to be on the tablets. And then when we get to chapter 25, Moses has the tablets, I assume, with all that's going to be contained on them, um, and he's supposed to take those back down and place them in the ark. But there is no ark yet because it's not till chapter 25 that, Mark, that um, God explains to Moses, I need an ark. I need a tabernacle with an ark in it. And he's going to give all that and lay it out for us in chapter 25. Um, so we'll start reading that beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive a contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. 
gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece, and let him make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. So as we read just that portion, what kind of words in there strike uh, you? Know, strike you? What, what sticks out to you? For me, I've, I've, I think about, you know, here's a, a band of slaves. Granted, a large hundreds of thousands of slaves have left where they were slaves and they're out here in the middle of the wilderness. I don't suppose any of them had a, a you know, a, a branch of founders or, or whatever to go stop at to get money out. And so um, all of a sudden Moses is going to come down to them and say, okay, we need to contribute. We need to raise gold and silver and all the precious things that you have. Um, we need to start collecting those for the Lord. And I'm thinking, okay, that's great. Why would, why would we expect slaves who have fleed from their owners would have gold and silver and bronze and acacia wood and fine linens and all these things? Why would they have these? From the Egyptians. So if you went back to chapter 12, um, verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we will all be dead. And then verse 35, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. They asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So they left them. So they let them have what they had asked for. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Plundered, that doesn't seem, you know. To me, that's contradictory terms when you go ask for it and then you plunder. I mean, that's two different things, right? But in reality, that's, that was one of the ways God was punishing the Egyptians for what they were doing to his people uh, in slavery was we're not only going to send all these plagues and, and kill your firstborn, but we're also going to take most of your prized possessions too. We're going to take your gold and your silver and your fine linens and your jewels and, and we're going to take them with us. Um, and the people were glad to do it because otherwise they were they knew they were going to die. Um, that that was the other option. So, and who was it that caused the Egyptians to do this? Well, it's the Lord because the Egyptians looked favorably on their slaves and handed all their stuff over as if they were being plundered by a thief. Um, and God is the one who did that. And God was the one who told the Hebrews through Moses to ask for it and and knew that they would give it. Um, but then in verse 2, there's another phrase in there. Um, you know, I look at it as here's a means of limiting the power of Moses and anybody else who comes into leadership. Is we're going to ask for these things only if their heart moves them. If your heart doesn't move you to give, you don't give. In fact, you know, the stance from Moses should have been, if you don't feel good about this, do not give it because I don't want it. I only want what your heart moves you to give. Um, and I think that limits that power. It's not like a tax. It's not like a you have to do this or we're going to kick you out of the clan or we're going to leave you out here in the wilderness and you're never going to see the promised land. There's no stipulations on it. It is strictly um, only those whose hearts are moved to give should give. Um, and so we often wonder, 
how would something like that turn out, right? Because if we just go to, you know, if we give the soft sell, um, only give what you feel, you know, you can spare or what you feel moved to give, um, the fear is we won't get enough, right? We have to force them to give. Um, but here's how it turned out. Uh, in Exodus 35, they came, everyone whose heart had stirred, everyone whose spirit had moved, everyone with willing hearts, they brought their gold, everyone who had possessed blue or scarlet yarns, um, acacia wood, um, and whose hearts had stirred, and, and it just keeps going through there, you know, all the women and men, the people of Israel, whose hearts had moved them to bring anything for the work of the Lord, as commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering. And so then if you skip over to verse to chapter 36, Moses called Belzalah and Ohaliab. I'm glad to have recorded those names for posterity the way I said them. And every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contributions that the people of Israel had brought to do the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, The people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded. So Moses gave a command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. The people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work. And so... Sometimes we think we just have to beat people over the head and shoulders to get them to give. And God said, no, just if their heart wants them to give, tell them to give. If not, don't pressure them. Don't make them feel guilty. And there'll be plenty. And I think that holds true today in the church that, you know, God will, you know, want to make us feel guilty about not meeting our tithe or not doing enough. Um, And in reality, God says, no. If they're not able and they're not capable to give now or they don't feel good about it or they're not moved to do it, don't do it. I'll get enough. God will always get enough. He'll always get what he needs and then some. Um, You know, what an incredible response uh, in the spirit that moved them uh, in such a way. Um, But before we leave that that first section in chapters 25, verses 1 through 9, um, verse 8 kind of gives the definition, the purpose uh, of why God wanted this tabernacle built in the first place. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Um, the Lord's design for his relationship between him and his people is to be very near, very present in their lives. Um, not a distant God, not watching from afar off, um, but a very involved God in their lives. Um, we all had parents, right? And we all remember how involved at times we thought they were too involved in our lives. At times we wondered where they were. Um, but, you know, God is, he wants to be involved. Um, he wants to be close. He, he, he's there. He's present. He's aware of every deed, every thought that we have. Um, and that can be comforting. But it can also be very scary, can it? Um, much like with your parents when you were young, if the parents weren't around, you could get away with a little bit more than you could otherwise. And so if the parents are always there with you, it gets a little scary when they can see some of the things that you might do. Um, and Dr. DeGuid talked about that in the quarterly, about the, the close proximity to a holy God could be a scary endeavor for uh, sinful people. Um, you know, that when you are, uh, um, know that you've got sin that you're trying to hide from the world, 
you can't hide it from God. And the closer he is, the closer you are to him, the scarier that gets to be. Because God's not only their provider and their protector, but he is ultimately the judge, too. Um, He's the one who um, at some point, at any point, can pour out his wrath upon sinful people. Uh, And we'll see that next week, I think, in the Golden Lamb, you know, that that God can pour out his wrath at any time. Uh, And so it's a two-way street. It's great to have God close by, but it's also a little scary um, to a sinful people. Um, But uh, both sides of that point to who's going to ultimately dwell with us in the person of Jesus Christ. In John 1.14, it said, The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to dwell among His people. Jesus came to provide greatest mercy we'll ever experience in the forgiveness of sins through His blood, uh, His death on the cross, His resurrection. Um, All that great mercy comes with having God dwell among us. Um, But Jesus will come again. And he'll be judge. And all of a sudden, those who have chosen to reject his cross, what he did on the cross, um, are going to be endangered to judgment. Um, and so we need to uh, view it the same way. But the picture of God dwelling in the tabernacle just pre, pre, you know, foreshadows the, the picture of Christ coming to dwell among us and coming to judge in a future date. So moving on, verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits, uh, and half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it, two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall shall put into the ark the testimony that I will give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I will give you in a commandment for the people of Israel. Um, so first in that section, God prescribes the building of an ark, which is not to be confused with Noah's ark, of course. This is just a, a small box. Um, the, you know, one and a half or two and a half cubits is really about, you know, four and a half, five feet, you know, four feet maybe. Um, so it's not a, and that's not a huge box. Um, and it's all, of course, covered in gold and all, but the, the image of the ark is a footstool. So it's, the, it's considered the footstool for God's throne. That's the image it's supposed to have. And wherever God's feet are resting on the footstool, 
That's where God stands. That's where God's presence is. Uh, and so that's the significance of the ark. Uh, but it's also as a box is going to contain within it um, the law, the, you know, um, and the covenant and a few other things, um, some manna after they wander in the wilderness a bit more and get familiar with manna, um, Aaron's rod, and, and just other things that have come to symbolize God's um, favor upon his people. And then on top of the ark, uh, is going to be the mercy seat, uh, which is just going to be a gold seat uh, with two golden cherubim on either side that face each other. Now, cherubim, as is described in the quarterly, not your sweet little pretty angels, baby angels that you see at Christmas time. It's these were the angels whose sole responsibility was to protect the throne of God. Um, and here they're sitting on the ends of the mercy seat on the ark to protect the integrity of God, so that no sinful uh, you know, uncleansed, unclean person can just wander into the presence of God. Um, the presence of God is very restricted in these days in the Old Testament. Um, you know, the, the way um, Dr. DeGuid described it was a profane intrusion on God's holiness. So they're there to protect the presence of God. And God's just a spirit, so we can't see God sitting on the mercy seat with his feet on the footstool. We can't see any of that. Um, but that's the presence of God. That's where his presence is represented. And so these cherubim are mean angels in a sense that they are there to protect that. Um, you know, the, um, the ark became very sacred um, to the Israelites, as it should have, the presence of God. Uh, and so it would move as the tabernacle moved because the tabernacle was a tent that was mobile in the days of Moses. Uh, it would later move into the temple. Um, and then there was some stories about where it was, uh, uh, you know, moved and used in, in as, you know, during different events. Um, uh, it became kind of thought of as a ma- magic box that had special powers. And if you had the box, you had the power. Uh, and that seemed to be, you know, consistent as long as the Jews had the box. But at one point, the Philistines got hold of the box, right? And it did not turn out well for them. They realized we get no magic power out of this box. In fact, their gods bowed down to the ark. Uh, and they realized we need to get rid of this. And so they sent it back to the Jews uh, because it did them no good. So it's, it's still God. You know, the Philistines realized God could take over himself, even if he's just a, a spirit dwelling on a box. Uh, he could take care of himself uh, just fine. Um, in verse, continuing in the text in verse 23, you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length. A cubit is a, its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. You should overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. You shall make a rim around it, a hand breadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the ring shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense, and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So stopping there for a minute... Understanding the layout of the tabernacle and which would be recreated in the temple on a grander scale, um, the ark sat in the small room called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. 
Um, nobody was allowed in that room except for the high priest, and the high priest could only go in there once a year to seek to intercede for the people on their behalf. Outside that holy of holies place was another room called the holy place. Not the most holy place, the holy place. That is where this table would go. Um, I had never realized before that the table also had rings and poles associated with it so that you couldn't touch the table, apparently. You had to carry it by the rings and poles, much like you did the ark. Um, I don't think I'd ever realized that, but I don't know that the table made the the journey uh, as often as the uh, ark did, uh, that it got moved much. Um, But on the table would be placed the bread of presence. The bread of presence was 12 loaves of bread that represented the 12 tribes of Israel, and the bread specifically represented the offerings that those people would give to the Lord. Um, So you had offerings from each of the 12 tribes represented in 12 loaves of bread that sat on this table. Um, Now, I don't know that anybody ever ate the bread um, or if... Every Sabbath, they would change the bread, so they would put 12 fresh loaves in every, loaves in every Sabbath. Um, but, you know, this could be some of the bread that the priest got to eat after the fact, after it had served its purpose for its week. Um, but that sat there representing what the 12 tribes would bring. Then in verse 31, we read about the golden lampstand. It said, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers. And a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamps shall be set up so as to give light to the space in front of it. The tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Um, Now, as I read through all this, I don't know how many of y'all, I'm not real handy around the house. So if I got to do something, I have to go to YouTube and see how it's really done. You know, the old dishwasher was leaking. I said, well, let's just go find somebody who's done this on YouTube. And there's about a thousand people out there who fixed a leak in their dishwasher and none of them do it the same way, but that's okay. We figured it out. Um, And so as I'm reading through this, I'm thinking, can you go watch a YouTube video on how to make the golden lampstand? Because this is real intricate detail here about, you know, the stems and cups and calyxes, which I didn't even know what calyxes were. I had to look that word up. And flowers and almond blossoms. And it's just very detailed, intri- you know, intricate work. Um, you know, that, and, and it amazed me that, that, that God demanded this kind of thing. I don't want just any old lampstands. I don't want just any old table. I want just any old box. Um, he has a plan, and there's significance to his plan. Um, and it's out of one piece of gold. And it's out of one piece of gold. You get, yeah. get me one talent of pure gold, and if you screw it up, you got to go get another one. Yeah. Um, it's, it's amazing. Um, the, 
um, the, the, the almond flower in, in the Middle East into that day represented the beginning of spring. So when the almond trees blossom, then you, they knew spring was coming. Uh, so that was kind of a foreshadowing of what was to come. Uh, and so, you know, one of the theories is that God wanted almond blossoms because this is just a foreshadow of what's really coming. Um, this is just a temporary until something better comes uh, and that something better will be Jesus himself. Um, but then there are other significant things like the, um, the light is shining on the seven or on the 12 loaves of bread. The way it's set up, the lampstand shines light onto the table. Um, and so it's shining light onto the 12 loaves of bread, meaning it's shining light onto the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and the seven lamps represent the seven eyes of the Lord, uh, which if you read in Zechariah 4.10, where he had a vision of a golden lampstone, lampstand in heaven, um, the seven uh, lampstands were the seven eyes of the Lord, which ranged throughout the whole earth. And so these seven lamps represent God's eyes watching and specifically, in this case, watching the 12 tribes of Israel uh, as represented by the seven loaves of bread. Um, if you read a little further beyond this text today, uh, we'll skip over it, but there's also a bronze basin that sat outside the holy place um, where you did your ceremonial cleaning and washing before you were allowed to go to the holy place um, or just to approach God in any way. Uh, and then before that was the bronze altar where you brought your sacrifices and presented them to the priest uh, and they would be burned on the, the bronze altar. Um, all this is within the tent walls or the fencing sort of of the tabernacle in Moses' day uh, would be within the wall when it converted over to the temple uh, in Solomon's day. Um, you know, so again, very elaborate, um, you know, requ requirements from God as they build this out, but God's going to, you know, it's going to represent God's presence among them. And I think God's presence among them uh, is worth whatever he asked for them to do. Um, but one of the things you're going to find is we go through um, the, uh, you know, the rest of the, the, the wandering in the wilderness and even into the history of Israel, especially, um, there come times when they begin to forget the significance of what God's done for them, where they don't remember the parting of the Red Sea anymore, where they don't remember the plagues of Egypt anymore, and they're not as enamored and enthralled with what God's done for them by making them their people, making them his people. And so, um, so they begin to become less concerned with the things of the tabernacle, less concerned with proper worship of God. Uh, and, and I think we all do that, Right. Um, sometimes I look back at the months we couldn't come to church and realize how precious church is, how much I missed the opportunity to come to church, uh, and how precious that is. Uh, but I think as the, you know, as the cares of life and the difficulties of life beat us down, sometimes we forget how special we are to have been called out by Christ to salvation, how incredible that is. Um, you know, so when you look back at what they had, all that there was represented in the tabernacle, God's presence with them, all that God had done to establish a covenant with them uh, and how they would wander and forget and disobey and turn it to, you know, sideways and do it all wrong. Um, we do the same thing, but, you know, um, but that's and we have a better way. You know, we have Christ. We have a new covenant. We have a better way, not a different way, a better way. 
Um, Paul declared in Romans that the law is holy and the commandments are holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with them. But now that Christ has come, we have the better way, uh, which is still holy and still righteous and good, but it's the better way. The old way pointed to the better way in Jesus Christ. Um, but instead of an earthly dwelling place where God resides among his people in a limited sort of fashion, um, you know, in the most holy of places that only one sinful man Remember, he was high priest, but he was still a sinner because all have sinned. Uh, one sinful man serving as high priest was allowed to enter once a year to intercede for his people. Uh, and he interceded with the blood of animals um, to be offered as sacrifice for sin. But the animals had, that blood of the animals had no real power to do away with sin. Um, but instead, now we have Jesus, who's the ultimate high priest, who was perfect who had completely fulfilled the law. Uh, and once his redeeming work was done on the cross and his task had been completed, he ascended to the ultimate holy place to, to intercede for his people. He, he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Um, and he's interceding not on a basis of the blood of an ox. He's, seating, he's interceding on the basis of his own blood that he spilled for the remission of sins. Uh, and it's just a whole different degree, a better covenant that we have. The original covenant was valid, but this is the completed better covenant that we have today. And I'm so thankful that we live this side of, of the cross and can understand that and have, have been given an understanding of that. Um, a few passages out of Hebrews. Um, Hebrews 9, verse 11, When Christ appears as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered for once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For Christ has entered not in the holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, and now appears in the presence of God on our behalf. Um, one of the interesting things... You know, when the priest went into the Holy of Holies that one time out of the year to intercede for the people, he, there was nowhere for him to sit in there. He walked in there, he, he did his blood sprinkling all over the place, and he prayed, uh, and then he walked out. He never sat down. Uh, but what is Jesus' position right now? He's seated. He's there forever. He doesn't ever walk back out. He doesn't ever um, stop interceding on our behalf. You know, to me, that's just an amazing difference of, of when you look at the better things of what Christ has made in, in the new covenant, a better thing for us. Um, in verse 14 of Hebrews, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God? But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice himself. What those priests did never could put away sin, but Jesus has put away. And then 